Hello and welcome to The Widow Podcast. I am your host, Karen Sutton, The Widow Coach. I am a widow, a mum, a health coach, a life coach and grief coach. I want to help you see that you really can create something truly meaningful after loss. You have everything you need within you and I want to help you find it so you can see how capable and amazing you really are. Helping you find a more positive way through your grief. Welcome back to the Widow Podcast. This week, I am super, super excited to have come and join us for what promises to be a a very lovely conversation because I've already spoken to her (laughs) and we had a wonderful conversation. So I know we're going to have another one. It is the the lovely Shalini Bala Lucas. and so Shalini is a widow. Um, her husband Jeremy died of cancer in 2016. Um, Shalini is also an ambassador for Way, widowed and young. She is an author, an entrepreneur, a TEDx speaker, end-of-life doula, and a mindfulness and meditation teacher, plus many other things. <laughs> but I just couldn't reel them all off. You just seem to have everything covered, Shalini. It's really quite inspirational and amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I get bored doing the same thing. So I, I do loads of things. And I quite like that kind of portfolio career. And they all, they all kind of, they uh, complement each other, don't they? So writing, and then teaching mindfulness, and I write about mindfulness. And yeah, it's all and an entrepreneur, I I ran my own dance company in, in England for many years. So dance is really creative. So yeah, just lots of stuff. And I think I'd be bored with the nine to five. Sorry yeah. to those who are nine to five. But I, <laughs> I have done it and it was so destroying. And actually it's when I had so many mental health issues. So, yeah. I know it's, it, it's you know, for some people it works, doesn't it? And we're all different. But what I love about you is, is you do have this very calm gentle way about you 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 know clearly the way you you live your life works (laughs) I'm loving I'm loving you say that because if you told my partner right now that I'm gentle and calm he'd be like who are you talking about which girl (laughs) that's funny I'm a little bit all over the place sometimes so I think it's finding balance right I don't want to be kind of almost horizontal calm where nothing gets done but at the same time I don't want to be crazy on 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 the go all the time which I used to be huh before Jeremy died and him dying was a bit of an eye-opener to the kind of lifestyle I was leading so yeah it's, it's huge a, I mean I've I've listened to your your TEDx talk which is in incredibly honest and raw um and inspiring and you know you talk about your mental health there um which you know you've clearly suffered with um in the past and you know I would say to anyone who wants to to watch your your TEDx talk to to go and watch it we'll put the link in in the show notes because it it really is um it's powerful it's really powerful and and you have been on one hell of a journey which has brought you to where you are now and I know quite a few people may know you because you have done some mindfulness and meditation haven't you within um widowed and young um some regular sessions I know some of my clients have have talked to me about what you do and and that really helps support people but should we should we sort of start with Jeremy and and you know what happened to to Jeremy and and how you kind of you know I guess started on 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 your journey through through this whole process I I guess with grief yeah I 
I think my my journey with him actually starts when I was 21 and he was 40 and I met him. I moved into the house next door to him. So I was the girl next door and I fell in love with him pretty much straight away. He was kind and beautiful inside and out and he was funny and he was clever and he was so good looking. And he was just the thing I'll always remember about him was he was an, he was a good person. He was just a good person. You know, when you just get people like that. Um, but he was all wrong for me on paper because I was this Indian girl, 21, just come to the UK from Kenya, which is where I am right now. And he was English, uh, 19 years older than me, divorced, had three children from his first marriage. So it, when I told my parents about him, it was just absolutely no way this is going to work. And you're absolutely wrong to go with him. And my whole family, even my extended family, who I never even saw were like, all had an opinion because Indian families, they all have an opinion. And I decided that I wasn't going to listen to anyone for, for a 21 year old who was very much part of a family knit community and, and, and very close to the parents. I need to go actually for the first time in my life, I'm rebelling. I've been a good Indian girl all these years. I've done everything you've said. I've gone to the schools. You've said, I've got you the grades. I did my dancing. I did whatever, whatever I learned French, whatever you made me do, I did it. But this on this one, I'm not budging because I really love him. And um, I was estranged as a result from my family for 12 years. And Jeremy was my family. The only other family members who really stuck by me were my sister and one of my aunts. But really, Jeremy was my family. And so we created a life together. And when you are just the two of you, okay, he had his mom, he had his daughters, but every day it was just the two of us. And he just became my life. He completed my life. He, he, we, we grew together. I grew up with him, really. If you think about 21 to 40, really formative years of your adulthood. And I maintain that he shaped the person I was. When I met him, I was extremely ruthless in work, ambitious, selfish. And I think he changed that in me. He really made me think um, about other people and more compassionately he always said the one thing I was really bad, I had no patience, none at all. He was the most patient guy and he taught me patience. He just taught me to be a better version of myself. And so I grew up with him and, and I thought we would grow old. We had fought family, family and societal judgment and everybody to be together. I mean, can you imagine 19 years age gap is a lot in any kind yeah. of cultural community, right? Mm. So um, but we'd fought all that and we were together. We were definitely, I believe he was my twin soul. Um, so we were really happy. And then in 2014, he was diagnosed with cancer, with renal cancer. Um, and when we spoke to the doctors, they said it's a really rare form of renal cancer. There's no treatment for it as such, but we will give you targeted treatment. At the time, they were experimenting with immunotherapy on skin cancer, but it was not accepted in the UK for any other cancers. So the doctors would not give it to him, even though they'd seen some good results in America. And I just find that crazy. Um, he had some radiotherapy, but I'm very much about you should do the conventional as well as the holistic and the alternative and the complementary. So we had a lot of, to begin with, we had a lot of fights about I said, you can't just rely on your oncologist and doctor. We have to do other stuff. 
So we threw everything at it. He, he opened his heart and mind to everything from Reiki to, um, to acupuncture, to eating well, to juicing, to Tai Chi and yoga. Jeremy did Tai Chi and yoga. I can't believe that. You know, he was such a practical Englishman. He did Tai Chi and yoga. But two years, almost two years to the day that he was diagnosed, he died. Um, it was funny because it was the Monday, it was a Monday evening that, uh, we rushed him into hospital that Monday during the day. He was really poorly. And he called me about seven o'clock. He said, you need to come in. The oncologist is coming in to see me. And he said that we should both, that I should be there with him. So I went in and his oncologist said, look, we've done everything we can. And um, you've got days, weeks at best, is what he said. And I remember to, to the, the oncologist was in front of me and Jeremy was here. And I turned around to Jeremy to say, rubbish this oncologist doesn't know what he's talking about I just didn't believe in medicine at the time and I turned to him to say rubbish you're going to fight this because you've been fighting it for the last two years and I think in my heart I just thought there was going to be some kind of miracle and I turned to face him and there was this look of complete peace on his face wow he's just been told you're going to die in the next few days and he had this complete not, I can't even call it resignation because resignation feels defeatist. It wasn't. It was just, it was like this very peaceful, um, yeah, I, that's the only way I can describe it. And he just looked like he was ready to go. And he he actually shook the oncologist's hand and said, thank you so much for everything you've done. And I, I, at that time, I felt like shooting the oncologist. And Jeremy's like, thank you for everything you've done. I know you've done everything you could. And he looked at me and he says, I'm ready to go. So that was the Monday. And then 72 hours later on the Thursday, um, uh, I held his hand. We sat in his hospital, he lost consciousness. And I sat with him for three hours. And I just said to him, you can go now. And I have this belief that you don't cry when a person is dying because their soul then doesn't go, doesn't release. It's a, it's a very Buddhist way of thinking about souls. And so I just held his hand and I said, you can go, oh, we love you, we'll be fine. And imagine for three hours, you're just hearing the death rattle get louder and louder. His breathing was getting more labored. And I knew he was just, he was breathing his last breaths, but the whole time I wouldn't cry. I wouldn't let his daughters cry either. And then, yeah, that Thursday, the 28th of July, 2016, he took his last breath. And the minute he took his last breath, I don't think, I can't remember, I cried and then I went very numb. You just go very numb and you go into doing both. I was like, okay, girls, you can go home now. Let's get the doctors in to write the death certificate, call the uh, care, um, undertakers. You kind of it's strange you just you something kicks in something I you know I didn't even know that I had in me kicked in yeah I mean you know it's just I can't even imagine what that time period must have been like for you because you know obviously my husband Simon died suddenly we, we didn't have that from from the time the the oncologist had said you, you know you haven't got long left did you and Jeremy have any sort of conversations in that time? Did you did you say goodbye? Did you talk about 
afterwards um or did you just kind of let it happen as it as it was meant to happen without necessarily acknowledging it no it's quite strange because I think I didn't expect him to die on the Thursday I thought he was going to stay till the weekend I still thought he had that much strength in him so I said to him on the Tuesday Wednesday I need to just get themselves sorted but on the Thursday I'm going to come and I'm going to stay the night and we'll stay together in the hospital I said actually what really was it, I on the Tuesday I, I did everything to get him home I got hospital bed in the lounge and I got everything ready for him to come home and then when I went back to see him that evening he was like no I don't want to tarnish our home so I said okay fine and then Wednesday all day I was with him Thursday all day I was with him and I just about three o'clock, four o'clock in the afternoon, so I'm just going home to pack a bag. Don't do anything stupid. I'll see you later. And about six o'clock, I got a call from his daughter saying he's lost consciousness, come in. And I remember my last words to him were, don't do anything stupid. I love you. I'll see you afterwards. Those were my last words to him. <laughs> um, but I think the time before we got into, some of it was quite practical, like... <laughs> He said, there's a folder in my desk in the top drawer, bring it to me. And I brought it to him and it was things like bank details and social media password, passwords and stuff like that. Very, he was a very practical, he was a bank manager for many, many, many years. He was a financial manager at a golf club and a GM at a golf club for years. So very practical. So, um, and then he said, I need to record my eulogy. So, uh, so that uh, my and then he chose his friend. He, he called his friend to come in and speak to him about doing the eulogy. He recorded what he wanted to be said about his life. Um, he sent text messages to all the people he wanted to say final words. Um, he was very practical that way. And I think we sat and we talked and I, there was this thing that we had. He always uh, used to say, I always used to say, I want to die at 60. I was, I was always, yeah, I want to die at 60 because I don't want to go through old age. And he said, oh, that means I'll, I'll have to die at 80. And he said, no, because I want to live to be 100. And I was like, oh, gosh, all right, you live to be 100, I live to be 80, and, and that's it, right? We're done. So I remember in the hospital saying to him, you were supposed to live to be 100. What happened? So, yeah, just things like that. You know, we brought up conversations and, and things um but it was it was actually quite practical I think um because we just I think we wanted to get the practicalities out of the way and then enjoy what time we had left and actually we didn't have that time yet so you just never know and sharing that time with him did it did you feel sort of deeply connected to him yeah it's it's funny, actually, um, his whole cancer, the whole time he had cancer, the two years that we knew he had cancer, were probably the happiest, the saddest, the funniest, the most intimate time we had. Mm -hmm. Because I think we had to laugh at some of the things that cancer brought up, right? Like, like just some of the treatment and some of the symptoms he had and stuff, because it was so bloody awful that the only way to deal with it was to laugh at it. We cried a lot. I cried a lot. Um, we got closer because I did a lot of energy healing on him. We talked a lot. We spent a lot more uh, quality time together. Um, yeah, I think those two years were very, And but I, I always had this belief that he would be okay. And when I look back on it, I remember looking at his photographs uh, of his last two, three months afterwards, many, many months later. And I was like, oh my God, he was really sick. He had lost a lot of weight. He looked sick. 
But I, Karen, at, that, at the time he was alive, I didn't see it. Mm. He, I still saw him as Jeremy and this beautiful man. And I, I still don't know whether that was hope or denial or a bit of both. You know, denial is a form of hope because I just felt, um, yeah, looking back, I just didn't see how ill he was. And, and it's funny because my dad then died of cancer 18 months later and I could see how ill he was because I had seen it before. But yeah. this time I acknowledged it. I really did. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I can only imagine that, you know, I think sometimes we really just don't want to see things, do we? Um, and, and we have to hold on to hope because without yeah. hope, what is there, you know? And, I you know, I, I can see that you would, it runs deeper than than that, doesn't it? I think, and in turn, you know, that the love that you have for someone and that hope that you you have for them, and you probably, you know, you can see what's happening from the outside, but you just want there to be more, um, so much more. When when you sort of, you know, and Jeremy got diagnosed in in twenty fourteen, um, and and you you were told about his illness and progressively he got ill. And I know you never you know wanted to believe that he would die and you you held on to hope and wanted him to to live and and survive in did you have moments where you thought about him dying and how you would cope in that and what you what you believed you you just didn't ever go there I didn't believe he would die I just didn't you just I and I didn't and the thought of it thinking about it made me think that if I think about it he will die so I was like, no, I'm not even, I didn't even think about it. I, and I can honestly say that I just, that's why I think when the oncologist said he doesn't have much time, I was like, this guy just doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> it's my head. Mm. He wasn't just, he wasn't going to die. You know, mm. you read these um, books. There's a book called, oh, I can't remember, it's by a woman called Anita Morjani, where she talks about coming back from having had cancer, really on her deathbed, unconscious. And then she had an out of life, is it out of life experience where she she goes, mm-hmm. she dies, and then she's sent back by her father saying that you're not, this is not your time yet. You're not. I thought Jeremy was going to do that. I really thought that his dad was going to send him back and say it's not your time because mm-hmm. I, I really believe in that kind of spirituality and stuff. So, I, no, I just didn't think he was going to die. So then, when Jeremy did die, um, and and you're you're thrown into this this world of grief that you don't understand, you don't know about, you clearly hadn't considered really before. How did you cope? What what were your kind of initial coping mechanisms? I suppose for for helping get you through that that raw early grief. So it's quite interesting. The first two weeks, I was numb. I hardly cried. I would, I, I just, I went into, um, I went into what I call uh, uh, project management because for two weeks I had to plan his, his funeral. So that's all. And I wanted it to be like the perfect funeral and I wanted to make sure everything was right for him. And I remember the vicar saying to me, Ian, saying, um, nothing's ever perfect. You just can't get it perfect. And I was like, you don't know me. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's going to be perfect. And I remember the one thing going wrong where we didn't put the book that you, the condolences book at, in the church. We only had them at the wake at the golf club where Jeremy worked. And, I, and that 
stuck with me for weeks that I had let him down, that I hadn't put a condolence because not everybody came to the wake. Many people came to the church and not to the to the after afterwards to the wake. And I remember thinking I've let him down. But other than that, the funeral was exactly as he wanted with all the all the songs that he wanted, all the hymns and stuff. So I went into project management for two weeks and I had a lot of people around me. My parents, by this time, my, my parents and I had reconciled a few years ago. So Jer- they knew Jeremy and, and my dad had actually become very good friends with Jeremy. And they had come for the funeral. My whole family came. My sister came. And then my dad and my mom and dad left after about a week. And then my sister I was like, you have to leave now. Um, a week after the funeral, my dad and mom left. And then a, a couple of weeks after the funeral, I said to my sister, you've got to go. Um, I need space. I need time. And for that first year, I just shunned everybody. I became a complete recluse. I drank a lot of alcohol. I, I used to pop ibuprofen and Panadol like they were Smarties because it was the only way to numb my pain, right? I thought that alcohol and painkillers would numb my pain. I had this void in me, like you can feel like there's that, you'll know this, Karen, it's like this kind of, you feel like there's a void in your stomach that there's a hole. And the only way I could fill it was by eating. And I would eat like sausage rolls and eclairs and, and stuff that I felt was filling very quickly, just yeah. really bad. I put on so much weight. And the thought of being with people was, you know, the thing that I think I uh, was most worried about was pity. I didn't want people to pity me. So instead of facing people, I, uh, I just, I just uh, shunned them and I just uh, avoided people. And I remember even to going to the doctors, right? I would put a cap, sunglasses. And I mean, in those days, we didn't have masks. I almost wish we had masks in those days, but I had, I had sunglasses. I had my cap down, my hair tied back, and I would put my scarf and coat. And this is how I'd walk like this so that nobody would see me because I just didn't want to see people. So that was my first year, really. I just. So how did your family and friends deal with that? Because they must have been trying to get to you. Yeah, yeah. So my for my my dad and mom would call me and I'd say I'm fine. I'm okay. They were in Kenya. I was in England at the time, so I was like, I'm fine. I, I'm good. I don't want to talk. And I'd put the phone down. Uh, I'd get the odd WhatsApp message every day. I'd get WhatsApp messages. Just tell us you're okay, and I'll be. I'm fine. Leave me alone. My friends. Uh, one friend was particularly persistent, and actually, she was really good. She'd come and knock on my door and. Sometimes I wouldn't even answer. They didn't know I'd be in there and I wouldn't answer. But occasionally I'd open and she'd say, right, you don't have to talk. Just get ready. We're going for a walk. She had a dog called Holly. And we would go into the forest in, near Cranley, where I lived in Surrey. And we would just walk. And she wouldn't even talk. She wouldn't expect me to talk. And actually, those are probably quite healing times. Um, but the, I think the fact that she said, you don't have to talk, yeah. uh, really helped. Because I think when people want to talk and they want you to talk, you're not ready. And I don't think you should ask anybody to do that. I'm here for you. Talk to me. No, I'm here for you. If you need me is all I want to hear. If you say I'm here for you, talk to me. I don't, I don't want to talk. <laughs> so yeah. But I think people just realized I was very strong. I had to do it in my own way. Um, and that's what I did. So what, what changed for you then? So about a year later, I um, brought Jeremy some of his ashes here to Kenya. Some I scattered in Surrey or in, in special places like where he used to go fishing in the golf club, uh, the church where he was uh, had his funeral. And then I brought half of these ashes here to Kenya. And I we had bought a couple of plots up north in sort of near the equator. We were going to retire there. He wanted to live in Kenya. He loved it. So I took some of his ashes there. 
And then I went back home to England and I started writing my first book, Always With You. And that book is about our journey, our love story, my depression. I suffered from depression whilst being estranged from my family. He's cancer diagnosis and then our bere- my bereavement and spirituality. And I wrote about all that. I've got the book here. It's called Always With You. Um, and I think, and that's Jeremy there. Aww. And that's actually after the diagnosis of uh, the wedding, uh, the wedding with cancer. Um, and it was around, in fact, we had not been married. We were together 17 and a half years. And then we got married just before, just after his diagnosis. Um, and that's why I say we were very happy in that time because we really made the most of it. And, and, and the, the wedding actually was um, very much about him being practical. He's saying that, look, you won't have any rights as my, as, as my wife without being my wife, because there's no such thing as common law wife in the UK. So we got married, but The writing of the book was really cathartic and I realized that it was just a really great way to get stuff out without being judged. And I wanted people to hear my story from me. So that was it. But also as I was writing the book sort of in September, um, I came back to Kenya in December because my dad was now not well. He had also been battling cancer for four years and he died in February. So exactly 18 months after Jeremy, my dad died from cancer. And I remember standing at his funeral and, and between Jeremy dying and my dad dying, I had, I was very suicidal. So I had planned my death many times and I had planned to hide myself from an Oak Beam hotel, or I had planned to drive my car into a, a tree, or I had planned to take pills and drink whiskey and, and just kill myself. But when my dad died and I was standing at his funeral, I remember standing there and thinking, gosh, Jeremy and my dad had both fought really hard to live, but cancer had got both of them. Mm-hmm. And here I was, I was throwing my life away. And yet I was only in my 40s, very early 40s. And I had life, I had health, I had a great career, I had financial independence, because Jeremy had made sure I was okay. And yet I was throwing it all away. And I actually owed it to them. I owed it to Jeremy. I owed it to myself to live life fully. And so I, at his funeral, it was a turning point for me, my dad's funeral, that, no, I wanted to live life. And I wanted to be able to one day go tell Jeremy that I've lived life to the fullest. And I've done everything that I wanted to do in this lifetime. Um, And that was my turning point. That is amazing, isn't it? Just that I mean it's a big moment you, you know your dad's funeral 18 months after your husband's funeral is, is is huge and for a lot of people that would take you deeper into the depths of depression wasn't it but obviously something came to you in in, in that moment and I love what you say there about you know when you see Jeremy again that that kind of I want to tell him and and that's that is a lot of what drives me you, you know I don't know what happens next um I, I don't believe anyone knows but I like mm-hmm. to believe <laughs> that you you know there's a greater purpose there's something else out there and we go on to something after this and and we will meet again um yeah. because that that for me that's that's a comforting thought whether it's true or not I, I don't know but I you know it's like that's what makes me feel good in the now I'm going with it and and in that you know I think about when I see Simon again I want 
I want to be able to tell him that I made the best of it. You know, I, I took the lessons that I learned through the pain of losing him. And, you know, you do go to a dark place. I was never a suicidal Shalini. I, you know, I, I can't pretend to know what that that's like. I think, I think for the first time in my life, I understood why people got to that point, which I'd never understood before. You, you know, before Simon had died, I'd, I'd never really understood why somebody thought leaving this earth was a was a was a better option um and, and I certainly got to a point in my grief where I was like god you know I didn't ever consider it um but I could relate really to the the pain and the despair that somebody was in and feeling like I just I can't do this this is too hard right um yeah I think it's the loneliness Karen it was just like you you one day this guy is there next to you in bed talking sharing your day I'm just the day to day and then the next day he's not there and you never are going to see the headlights of his car driving up the driveway you're never going to hear the the turn of and it's the small things the turn of the key in the door or you're never going to hear those words um, Charles, here's a cup of tea. Don't let it get cold as he puts a cup of tea on my bedside mm. table and, mm. and goes to work. Or or the, the sound that I always say was my favorite sound was Tabasco, our cat would wake him up. Never wake me up. Always wake Jeremy up. And Jeremy at like some stupid o'clock, right? Five o'clock, six o'clock in the morning. And Jeremy would carry him down like a baby and say, okay, Tabasco, right, let's see, let's get you some food and let's get my, and he's got me mommy, let's get mommy a cup of tea. And I could hear all this downstairs and it was my favorite sound. And, and Jeremy would be talking to Tabasco and Tabasco would be going meow, 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 meow. And it's just such a beautiful sound. These two, my two most precious people, creatures on earth talking to each other. And I just realized I was never going to hear that again. It's those small things. It's not even... Yeah. Yeah, it's that companionship. It's that it's it's that um he was my lover, he was my best friend, he was my husband, he was he was my everything. Yeah. And not, you know, and I still there were days when I would read something or see something on TV and think, oh, I can't wait to tell Jeremy that. Yeah. And I did that for years later, you know, and, and there's still times I'm with somebody else now. I do that sometimes. We were on Safari just this weekend. And uh, we saw some amazing rhinos. And one of the first thoughts that came to me was, wow, if Jeremy was here, he would love to take photographs of this. Yeah. So he's still very much a part of my life. And I, I think, I, I do think he's, he's very much, I, I think I've said this to you in the past off, before we talked um, on this podcast is, I believe that Jeremy still is, is uh, looking over me. I believe that everything we, everything I do, everything I achieve, he's still there. And I do think I will see him one day. I, I'm very much a believer in the afterlife and reincarnation because I believe that we've had many lives together. I, I know that now he's at peace and he's out of pain, which is really important to me. And when I picture him, I picture him as the man I met and the man I was with for many years, not the man who died, not that those last few photographs that I've seen. And I know that he's having fun up there. So bloody hell, I should have fun down here as well. Because although I believe in reincarnation, I believe that I will only ever be on this earth as Shalini once in this after meeting Karen in, in this after once having this conversation at this moment, present moment once 
um, being with my current partner once. So I feel that everything, I, I want to live life really fully because I think it's really important that we do because you and I both know life is so frigging short, so short. Mm. Jeremy was 59. I was 40 when he died. I should not have become a widow at 40, mm. right? Mm. And, and But I did. Mm. And who's to say that that isn't my journey? At the time, I was like, how the hell did this happen to me? There was a lot of self-pity. There was, I, you know, there was never anger. There was never anger towards him or or the, I don't, I don't say God, I don't believe in God. There was never anger, but there was just like, what the hell just happened, hmm. right? What the hell just happened to my beautiful life? And I realize now that I still have a beautiful life. It's just different. And Jeremy was part of that for 19 years. But it, and he'll always be part of it, but in a different way now. And I will always have those memories with him. Um, and nobody, nobody can take those away from me. And, and, and the person I am is because of the life we had together. Nobody can take that away from me. So I, I want to celebrate that rather than mourn that, I think. I think oh that's really important. That is beautiful. That honestly, you've just done something to me. That was what you just said was so beautiful. And it really resonates because I feel that so deeply too and it's not easy I don't think that's a, a thing you can decide early on in your grief like you just say at the beginning it's like what has happened to my life what how, you know this is awful this is horrendous like I can't do this I'm sad I'm bereft I'm full of fear I don't know where I fit in you, you know all that big stuff and you miss that person like how can somebody be here and then they're not how, yeah. how are we supposed to process that and understand that I, I still don't really understand yeah. um because it, it's huge it's it's huge isn't it that that we're here one minute and not and it and it does make you think about your own mortality and your your so own much. life um so much but you're right you're so right that you know, life is a gift. I truly believe life is a gift and we don't know how long we've got it for. Um, the chances of us even having the opportunity to experience this life are ridiculously small, aren't they? Yeah, you know, yeah one in, I don't know how many billions. Billions and billions. Yeah. Like the, and, and, you know, pain and loss and suffering is inevitable in that. It is. But it's all part of the journey. And, and that's not to, sh to say that, you, you know, I'm glad we lose people or it's a good thing that people die young or it, it, I'm none of that, but life is, is a gift and terrible things happen in life and, and all sorts of terrible things don't they happen to, to people and it. it can be really tragic. But what I think I love about you, Shalini, what really resonates with me is the fact that we have choices in how we respond to the things that happen to us in life and it doesn't feel like that at the beginning it really doesn't we feel like we have no choices and you know I, I often hear clients saying to me you know somebody said to them well you're so strong and they're you know the common response is well what choice have I got and I've got to be strong and it's like well you haven't actually you, you know no. you have so many choices you know yeah. we're not always aware of the choices that that you know that we kind of just do them um, but we don't recognize them for the awesome choices that we're making day in and day out and, and recognizing that and acknowledging that within our, ourselves. But, you know, in your TED talk, you talk about happiness and, and how do we find happiness and, and talking about the choices. 
so I guess, you know, you had that moment at your dad's funeral where you were like, right, I need to turn this around. Obviously, you made that that choice. You had that moment of clarity. You, you stepped into your power. But we don't just get to decide that and then it happens. No. So what no did you do then at that point to kind of claw back that control, to make better choices, to put that into practice so that you could create a beautiful life for yourself again yeah it's interesting you would use the word choice because I think happiness is a choice and I think this journey that we're on we're all on a different journey is something now not everybody believes this. this is very much my spiritual belief that the whole thing with reincarnation the whole point of reincarnation is that your soul grows right each time you come down to this earth the soul is the same it's the person is different, the vehicle is different. So your body is different. So every time you have a lifetime, you have to learn lessons. And my lesson in this lifetime, I believe, is debilitating depression, family estrangement, and grief, bereavement of my twin soul of Jeremy. And I had to learn those lessons. But when you're going through it as a human being, you're not thinking of souls and all that stuff. You're thinking, this is me, Shalini. My heart is literally breaking. And I don't even want to know about soul lessons and all that stuff. I don't even think about that. Because right now, all I can feel is I feel shit, basically. So I don't care what my lessons are and what, what I've written in the past life and all that. But I think as I began, as the grief began to lift, as I began to write and it was cathartic, I began to realize that Yes, life is precious. Life is a gift. Life is, but how do I want to live this life? And I had seen before Jeremy had died, actually, that the birthday, my 40th birthday, he'd taken me to see the Dalai Lama. And yeah, in London, we had both gone to see him. And it was like one of the most precious memories I have of me and Jeremy sitting together, watching this amazing man talking and saying that actually the meaning of life is happiness. That is it. That's the meaning of life. And he said, and Dalai Lama says, it's not that difficult, actually. Um, the, the, the meaning of life is happiness. That's not the difficult bit. The difficult bit is what makes happiness. And I realized that for me, for 19 years, my happiness was Jeremy. I had actually put my happiness in another person. Now, rightfully or wrongfully, that's what I'd done. But really, so when Jeremy died, my happiness died with him. I didn't know what it was like to be my own person. And that's not taking away from him or our relationship because he'd always supported me in my career as a person. I was very, very fiery, very strong-minded. We had, you know, and he just kind of, he just indulged me. He was just so lovely. But I realized that without him, I wasn't happy. So I had to find a way to be happy. And, and the first thing I did, Karen, was I actually thought, okay, I'm going to find happiness in another person, in another man. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go online dating. And I did that for seven months and I was prolific. I was on six or seven online dating websites. I spoke to 50 guys. I dated 20 guys. I slept with a few of them. And I was just like, I really, I had a lot of fun, but I think that was just a, a distraction. I was looking for happiness in another guy, just like Jeremy had given to me. And then in those seven months, I realized actually none of these guys are going to give me happiness. I have to find happiness for myself. I have to find happiness within. So I went back to a lot of um, things I'd done before. So I was a dance teacher in, in, in England. And so I started teaching dance and dance became very much a healing for me. I was a mindfulness teacher as a result of my depression. 
so I went back to meditating and mindfulness and teaching mindfulness. So I went back to my own practice. And then I started uh, looking at what was working for me. So I had been eating badly, drinking a lot. I cut all that out. I got a personal trainer. So I started looking at my body, fitness, food, sleep. So my, my body, I began to heal my body. I began to heal my mind with meditation and mindfulness. I, and, and dance is both body and mind. I started healing my spirit. So I opened, I started a Jeremy Lucas education fund, which was with my sister here in Kenya. And so we support children uh, through secondary and tertiary education here in Samburu, North Kenya. These are kids who cannot afford anything. They would become, eventually become herders or sell vegetables on the, on the street if, if they didn't get an education. So we pay for that. And now at the moment we're supporting 16 children and, and some of the money Jeremy left me went to that. Um, so that was altruism just being more compassionate to myself, to other people, to realizing that everybody has their shit to deal with and everybody's got a story. I think before Jeremy, I was a little bit harsher, a little bit more judgmental. Now I see that everybody's got their shit going on and we've got to, we've got to just, if somebody says something to you, it's not a reflection on you, it's them having whatever they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So I went through these 10 techniques and I, and I, I created 10 <coughs> techniques and I'll just show you. So, so this was the online dating book. The knobheads, nut jobs, and nice guys. I love that title. <laughs> I know a lot of knobheads, a lot of nut jobs. But you know what's interesting? When as I finished that, I realized that there are a lot of broken people out there. A lot of broken people looking for happiness, looking for companionship, just not going about it a great way. And I think that was that was for me really an important part of my journey because at twenty one, Jeremy was the first guy I'd been with. He was the first guy I slept with. So. I almost was now rebelling in my 40s, but realizing that actually it, I had fun. I, I can't lie. I had a lot of fun. But when it stopped being fun, I realized I had I had to find a deeper meaning. And, and that's when I came up with the third book, Happiness Is It Simply a Mindset Shift. And I came up with 10 techniques to to help to to cultivate my happiness. Yeah. And it took time. I'm still working on it. I still have tough days. Um but I do believe that happiness is a choice. And when Jeremy died, I was at my most vulnerable. Okay. The, and I, I think you probably understand that, Karen, because you are yeah. so vulnerable. You fear yeah. of the future, fear of a life without him, yeah. fear, fear, fear. And I had to find a way of coming back from that vulnerability to a place of courage. Yeah. And I can definitely say that these techniques helped me. I was in so much pain that I had to find purpose and positivity in that pain. And again, th these techniques helped like altruism. When you focus on other people, you're finding purpose. When yeah. you talk about grief and, and, and working with widowed and young, for example, made me realize that I wanted to talk to other people to say to them, to other women in my position, you're not alone. I can't, I can't stand in your shoes because everybody's grief is different but I can to a point understand and empathize. I'll never fully understand because we'll never fully understand what each other's journey is and, and we shouldn't, but I can empathize. And you're not alone. You're not alone to have these feelings, whatever they may be, they're very valid. Mm. Um, and I think as a result of these awful wounds that have been inflicted on us, because they have been inflicted on us, we, these are not things that we brought on ourselves. When your husband dies, it's not something you've chosen. You've got to find some kind of wisdom from that 
you've got to grow from that. You can't stay in the same. I'm not the same Charlene that Jeremy saw or knew and, and was with. I've had to change. Mm. And, and the pain that I've been through and the grief and the vulnerability and that those wounds that are inflicted on me have changed me. Mm. And I think we talked about this off, off air. Do you remember we said that if they, if our husbands, our respective husbands came back, would they even recognize me, recognize yeah. us? And I'm not sure Jeremy would recognize me as the Charlene he had. Mm. How could I be the same? Mm. Mm. So, yeah, it, I don't know huge. what your question was. I, I'm just <laughs> No, just how you how you kind of made that decision and then then followed that up, I suppose, with actions to ensure that that because we all say things, we all want things, um, but that involves us doing something differently, doesn't it? Essentially, if we want a different outcome, we've got to do things differently. We've got to make different choices, but that's hard, right? You, you know, like we get we get comfortable in our space whether that's good for us or not because it's familiar it feels safe it's what we know and stepping out of that and like you say we feel so vulnerable and so afraid and and stepping out of our comfort zone into a place where you you know that vulnerability is heightened the the fear is heightened um you know our confidence takes a massive hit our self-esteem takes a hit we don't know who we are we don't know where we fit in we don't know what we're doing and and we've got to figure it all out Oh, we don't know who we are. I don't oh. even know whether to call myself a wife or a widow because I hated that word widow uh, for the mm. first few years or first few, first definitely for the first year and a half. I was like, I'm not his wife. I'm his widow. I'm not. I'm not his widow. I'm still his wife. And then I went on a holiday and I had to tick married, single, and I'm like, I'm not married legally. This is an immigration thing. I can't say I'm still married. So what am I? I'm not single. I'm widowed, and I hate that word. I hated that word. I've come to terms with it. But they're all labels, right? But you do, you lose your identity. You do. Without Jeremy, who was I? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, we lose our place in the world. And it has such a profound effect on us, you know? And and like you've just touched on there that, you know, if, if Jeremy and Simon were to come back now, um, you know, over five years later, it's, it's that, what would they think? What would they say? You know, would they even recognise us? Because it changes us I mean I personally fought those changes for so long I didn't want to change I I believed that if I allowed myself to change it would mean I'd become a miserable angry resentful widow you know um and I didn't want to become that person and that that was all I could see so I thought that that, that's all you could see but change doesn't have to be that way no exactly and and exactly that and and just because it was going to be different didn't mean it had to be bad and and that was the the thing I had to really get my head around you know yes it is going to be very different it's going to to look entirely different you're going to feel entirely different um but that doesn't mean it's going to be bad It's, it's not an easy process but you can create something beautiful meaningful loving passionate fulfilling vibrant flourish you you know you you can but you have to make choices and and we have to I think we have to work on our mindset we have to work on the way we perceive things we have to work on you know the meaning that we place on things because we do we do place meaning onto things that add to our suffering 
Um, and, and it's all of that tackling our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, learning how to get to know who we are again, how yeah. to, to manage all that, how to create connections with ourselves, with the world around us, with our person, with, with the people that, that we, we love and, and want to help us. It's, it's a very, very rocky road to travel, you, you know, and it's hard work. It's, it's not easy. It, that's, I think that's an understatement. It's like the yeah. hardest thing I've ever done and ever yeah. been through in my life. And it's, the, it's actually the most devastating because you have to rebuild yourself, your life, your friendships, your connections, your everything. You just have to rebuild everything. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the thing, I'll tell you what was really interesting for me, Karen, was I had to, when I started uh, online dating, I was so worried about other people's judgment I was asked my sister, my best friend and my dance students and everybody. I was like, okay, what do you think? And, and they were so happy for me. Yeah. It wasn't even about them. It was about my self-judgment. Yeah. Am I allowed to move forward from my relationship with Jeremy? Mm. Am I betraying him? Am I betraying our love? Am I betraying our relationship, our marriage, our memories? And when you realize that you're not... And the only person judging you is you. And if anybody else is judging you, well, they can just go and jump because who cares? Yeah. They're not they're not important enough. And if yeah. they are judging you, then they really need to get a life. Yeah. But the only person who is judging you, who is holding you back, who is having those feelings of guilt is yourself. And once you work on that and you say, one, Jeremy would never want me to just stop living he'd never want me to be unhappy he loved me and his love meant that he wanted me to be happy two he would be he would be happy to know that I'm moving forward I'm never going to move on from him he will always be part of my life the memories I still say even with my current partner I'll say oh Jeremy would have loved that and luckily I've got a partner who understands he it for me moving forward had to be a choice without the guilt and the judgment that we put on ourselves right right and when I made that decision and I am now in a relationship which when we I I came back I'll tell you a little bit about how this came about because it's interesting that for three years I continued to live in Jeremy's and my house in Cranley in in Surrey and then one day I just realized I couldn't do this anymore I was Mm -hmm. still waiting for the for the key in the door I was still waiting for the headlights on the driveway still three years on I was like I can't do this anymore and so in August end of August 2019 I put my house in rent I got rid of three quarters of our stuff I put whatever stuff was important to us some of his stuff some of my stuff pictures and books in storage but most of the furniture and everything I gave away it's all just stuff and I rented out and I was like okay I'm going to travel the world so I went to London for a few months. I came to Kenya to see my mom and sister who are here. And it's then that's when I met my current partner, Omar. We're actually childhood friends. We've known each other since we were babies. He's he, my mom and her siblings and his dad and siblings have grown up together. His aunt and my aunt are best friends. My dad and his dad were best friends. So there's a lot of history and family connection, but we'd lost connection for 30 years. So we, we reconnected and... I kept saying to him, I'm going back to the UK. My car is there. I'm going to pick it up. I'm driving it through Europe. I'm going to Tuscany. I've booked in April 17th. I have to be in Tuscany because I'm working on a vineyard and just for a month volunteering because that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do three years around the world volunteering. And uh, 
I um, I'm going to meet a wonderful Italian man. I'm going to learn to speak Italian. We're going to drink lots of Chianti. (laughs) And then after that, I'm going to leave the Italian guy and say ciao. And I'm off to uh, wherever next driving. And then I'm going to go and sell my car. And then I'm going to go to, I was a bit like eat, pray, love kind of thing, but my (laughs) style. And I was here and we started a relationship and he said, look, wherever you go, I will come and see you if that's what you still want to do. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm still getting on that plane. And then COVID happened. And um, I ended up, borders ended up shutting all over the world. And then I ended up, ended up staying in Kenya. And we've just celebrated two years together. Wow. And the first few months were tough. He knew all about Jeremy, but he always felt second best. And I had to find a different way to communicate to him that I still wanted Jeremy as very much part of my life, but he wasn't in my life now that Amr is different, Jeremy is different. My love for Amr is no less, it's just different. Um, I love Amr with all my heart. He, he really completes me now as I am, as did Jeremy when Jeremy was alive. He, I loved him with all my heart and he completed me, but it's just different. My love is not less for either, it's just different. And I think when I gave myself permission to fall in love again, that's when it happened. And I'm so grateful how many women can say that they've had love not once, but twice from two really beautiful men. They're both so, they're both in, in actually so similar. They're both so kind and so funny and so clever. They look completely different. They are different. They have different interests. But the pers- the characteristics that I keep saying, I manifested these guys in my life, was the kindness and the, and the clever and the funny and the fact that they just, they love me with all, all their hearts, right? And I say they because I still feel Jeremy loves me and, and Amr loves me. And I'm blessed to have this love twice in my life. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel that that's, that's really, life is to be happy. It's to be loved and it's to love and it's to connect. And it's up to us to do that and to do that you have to grieve, you have to go through the pain, you cannot go around it, you have to go through it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's shitty, and it's painful, and it's dark. Mm-hmm. But you will get through it. Mm-hmm. And when you get through it, there is so much to be thankful and grateful for. And there is so many people that you're going to connect with and you'll and, and life is life does not have to be long. We know it's not long life is short, we know that firsthand but you've got to live life big and you've got to life, live life compassionately and fully and every day, just live it. That's all I can say. That's, that's how I choose to live my life now. I love that. I do love that. Shini. It's just, it's everything that I believe, you, you know, and that's like you've said, it doesn't make it easy to, to live that out. You, you know, I very much believe that life is better shared with somebody, um, you know, that connection, that getting out there, that embracing it, making the best of it, creating life experiences that that fill your heart with joy. But, you know, giving, like you say, giving yourself permission to love again, to let somebody love you again, to build a life after you've lost someone you love. Um, for, for many reasons, the, the guilt we feel towards our person of betraying them and, and living life and being happy, the, the fear of judgment of others and what they're going to think. And does that mean I'm no longer grieving? Does that mean I no longer love them and all the meaning that we place on it? But essentially, 
to your point, it comes down to what we think of ourselves and finding our own peace in it, isn't it? You know, it just, it just does not matter what other people think. You have to find that place in your heart that says, I have enough room for more love and it doesn't take anything away from me. No. I still have that love. It's still there that, you know, I am who I am because I had them in my life and all the experiences that I've, I've had and been through because of them have shaped me to who I am today. And I, and I want to share it and I want to, to love. And it is a blessing. I, I never truly believed that I'd find true proper love again I think I always thought if I was to find somebody else it would never be as good I'd never feel as safe um it would always be a a, a kind of you know compromise yes yeah. yes exactly and it's not and it's, it's not it's it's like you just said it's so different because you're different and your yeah. needs are different and you're a different person and and how you experience the world is different so yeah you know it is very different but that love is is still there for your person and they're still very much a part of your life you you, you know aren't they they don't it's it's not I don't believe there's you know sort of a they talk about a pie don't they and and you have to give pieces of your pie away until there's none left it's like we it just keep growing and and you you know loving someone else or letting more love in doesn't take love away from anyone else and it's understanding that I think and making peace with it within your own heart which isn't easy um and and I think well, no. it's yeah. not easy if anybody says it's easy they're not doing it right <laughs> and it's not easy for the person trying to date us either you know oh. kind of that's a whole other level of that's another that's another conversation, that's a whole other conversation and, isn't it? and that's interesting because I think we're not actually having these conversations enough with the other halves no, and I not. think that's that's definitely a podcast for you to do currently yeah. to have a couple of other halves on and maybe your other half and yeah. say What's it like dating somebody knowing that it wasn't an acrimonious divorce? I still love Jeremy, right? And I don't even call him. Somebody said to him, what was your ex's name? Oh, he's not my ex. He's still my husband. So for now, for Amma to understand and and accept and and, and come to terms with that, it's it's been a it's it's been a it's been a journey for him as well. But I think. Yeah. The fact that we wanted to be together, we you've just got to figure it out. You've mm. just got to figure it out. But I just want to tell people out there that don't force it. It will happen when it, it's meant to happen. But also you have to first work on yourself. The grief will never go. I Look, I talked about Jeremy earlier on, I was still crying, right? The grief is still there. It just changes shape. It changes intensity. It was a piercing pain to begin with. It's an ache now. And I like the fact that I still cry when I talk about him because it means that I still love him and he still loves me and he's still in my heart. But it is a process. It will take, you have to go through it. Mm-hmm. But but then when you've, when you've done all the crying and the shouting and the grieving and, the, and knowing that that grief will still be there, You've got to open your heart because you have to open your heart and open your mind as well to being happy. I'm not saying looking for another relationship or anything because we don't know what your journey is. But what I want you to really think about each and every person is open your heart to being happy. And when you then open your heart to being happy, miracles will happen because then your heart is open, your mind is open, your spirit is open for whatever is supposed to come your way. We're not meant to be this unhappy all the time, Mm -hmm. right? 
that's not what our life is about. Yes, we're supposed to go through shit. Yes, we're supposed to go through the tough times because that's the only way we learn. And that's the only way we see the difference between happiness and that, that, that kind of up and down. But you're not meant to be unhappy all the time. No. But only you can do that. Mm. Only you can open your heart up to whatever you're supposed to have next. Mm. And if you don't open your heart, then you will not be able to move forward. And, and I, that's why I, I always say to people, open your heart, open your mind, because you just don't know what's around the corner. God, I mean, the, the, the opportunity and the possibilities are endless. And, and they are. And, and, and I know some people aren't ready to hear that yet, you know, especially if you're in those raw, raw early days. And Maybe. I understand that I do. You know, if, if somebody said to me at the beginning, well, this is going to teach you something and you're going to have opportunities. I, you, you know, I, I probably would have punched them in the face. <laughs> I would have slapped them. I would have, you know, when, when people said to me, I remember the first week I had, time will heal. And yes. I'm just thinking, time will heal? What are you talking? Oh, yeah. um, you're still young. You'll find somebody else. Yeah. What yes. are you talking about? What yeah. are you talking? I can't even think about making yeah. myself a cup of tea and you're thinking of me having another relationship. I know. That's it. So, it's, it's, it's a, do you know what? It's, it's just about being open to the next step isn't it? Not, not, not the 50th step. It's kind of just going, okay, where am I in my journey? What, what could be my next step? And that might just be getting out of bed and that's okay. (laughs) Washing your teeth. The fact that you can get out of bed and for me, it was get out of bed, feed Tabasco, get, make myself just about make myself a cup of tea, go back to bed and cry. Yeah. And that was my day sometimes really. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. get up again in the evening just to feed Tabasco and maybe something myself and pour myself a whiskey. Yeah. That was kind of my days. Right. Yeah. And that was like five and a bit years ago, five and a half years ago. Mm. If you told me that this is where I would be five and a half years later, I would have slapped you because I'd be like, no, well, one thing is I don't want to be there. Yeah. I don't want to be happy again. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't deserve to be happy again because you have to go through that grief and the darkness and that pain. Yeah. And, and, and I, but you will get through it. You have to work through it. But mm-hmm. I just want to tell people that you will get through it and whether or not you have a relationship again, another relationship, that is not what we're talking about. Right. You've got to open your heart to being happy again, whatever that brings you. And for some people, it's having another relationship. For some, it's not. It's it's deciding that they don't want to have another relationship. And that's absolutely okay as well. But it's coming to peace with what you want for the rest of your life. Because we were widowed young. We deserve to be happy. And mm. but but step by step. And and where somebody who's just been breathed this week to somebody being bereaved 10 years, 10 years later, or even you and I, Karen, we're yeah. very similar timeline, yeah. but it doesn't mean our journey is the same, no. right? And that's mm-hmm. really important to acknowledge that everybody's journey through this is different. Everybody's timeline is different. And, mm-hmm. and to acknowledge and accept and be aware of that. There's yeah. no, I think the thing is, there's no right or wrong through this grief journey. Not at all. Really. And there isn't. And I think, you know, it's it's learning to be kind to ourselves to feel the pain and to to give ourselves that that time to understand who we are again i think we have to to reconnect with ourselves so you know so yeah. much because everything changes and and we're often making choices from a place of who we were 
and it's kind of we've we've got to learn that that person has gone and that's that's another loss and that's a whole other load of work but it's kind of saying goodbye to that person you know rediscovering who you are now in this place in your life and then making your choices about what's right for you but it, it has to come from within we have to do the inner work before we can figure out what's right for us next and, and what we try to do and what I certainly try to do is not do the inner work and just figure out what was right for me next. And I was making all kinds of silly choices, yeah. and questionable decisions that I don't regret. It was part of my journey, but I'm just glad I didn't stay in that space because once yeah. I, I kind of turned the focus on to me, um, like you say, magical things kind of happen. It, it does. I opened my heart and my mind to newness. I accommodated the changes. I, I I got to know who I was again. I followed my heart. I worried less about what other people thought and, and, and focused on what I thought about me and the choices I was making in my day-to-day life and what I truly desired in my soul and what made me happy. Not what used to make me happy. What actually makes me happy now is very different. Very different. Um, very different. And, and it took me down a path and it took me down the right path. Um, and it still does. Like you say, it's a lifelong journey. there's no destination is there you kind of go okay I'm sorted I've got this covered but you're never sorted and actually I think that's that actually taught me Jeremy's death taught me that life is a journey and not the destination because we were so like I was like okay when you are when you retire we'll go to Kenya and I was living to move to Kenya and now I'm like it's funny because Amar will say to me are you excited about tomorrow we're traveling I'm like no 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 I'll get excited tomorrow (laughs) I'm very much like live in the moment like right now I have stuff to do and I'll do it and then the next day I'll get up and that's when the excitement starts kicking so I'm very much much more measured in the way I I'm not always living in the future which is what I was when and I remember saying I just have to get through this week and I'll be able to relax and I just can't wait for this week to be finished I never say that anymore because you're wishing your life away. And Jeremy used to say to that to me, say, you're wishing your life away. Stop doing it. And I never learned that lesson until he died. And I think sometimes I, there's so, I mean, it's crazy, right? You go through something so tragic to learn such important oh life lessons. And I wish, I wish I could have told my younger self, these are the lessons you should have learned, right? You, these are the lessons you need to learn now. And it, it, it takes something so tragic for you to learn them. And, and I hope younger people today just really, this whole thing about, like the Dalai Lama says, what is happiness? Is it the house? Is it the car? Is it the status? Or is it connection and compassion? And I learned that after Jeremy died. And the funny thing is he knew it all along. He was so mindful. He was always content with what we had. He didn't have to earn the huge amounts of money. We had a couple of holidays a year. He was happy. We were comfortable. And I was constantly going, no, no, no. I want more money and more this and more that and more. And I just realized now how content he was with life. He was actually a really old soul. And I think he, he was just so content with life. And I learned that and he kept saying to me, you need to be more content with life, just life, living, just being. And now I know what he means now, you know, and I think when I, if he, you know, if he's looking down at me, he'd be quite proud of me, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. Do you know what, everything you, you've said just speaks to my heart so loudly because I feel it. And, and I, you know, I've often said that, you know, I wish everyone could kind of see life the way I see it, um, you know, because I feel that what I have been through has has taught me so much and given me a greater perspective, a deeper appreciation for everything around me, a, a different outlook. 
And yes, I wish I could have learned it in a different way. Um, I wish I'd known it sooner, but I, I can't change that. I, no. I've learned it now. I have learned it and I'm, I'm grateful for the lesson. Like yeah. I say, I wish it was in a different way, but it wasn't. And I have to take those learnings with me and utilize them in my life in the best way that I can and and to to help others find their way in in their life as well, because that that's that's what's so important. Yeah, but, but you know, I just I just want to thank you so much um, for everything that you've you've shared here um your story your wisdom your your insight your books your books are brilliant <laughs> um where can people find you Shalini if they want to get in touch with you so I'm on all social media at just Joom, j-u-s-t-j-h-o-o-m and all my books are available um, on Amazon worldwide so just uh, go google my name at Shalini Bala Lucas so Shalini Bala is my maiden name and then Lucas was Jeremy's surname so I took that on as my professional name uh, yeah, so at Just Doom. And I've also got a website, www.justjoom.co.uk. Love it. Brilliant. I'll, I'll put all those links in, in the, the show notes as well. Um, because, I mean, and your TED Talk, we have to put that in there. And for people to watch, to watch that, I know a lot of it's been said today, but, you, you know, I just think our, our, our stories um, have some similarity. I think our outlook from our experience and I always love meeting sort of kindred spirits, like-minded souls. It, it kind of, it fills my heart and, and helps me in my healing journey, you know, because we're still on it, right? And, and I think meeting people that are, are on it too, there's something deeply nurturing, restorative and powerful in that. And, and I always learn something from these conversations and it offers me you know new insights new ways and and i'm really grateful for your time and and everything that you've you've shared with us today shalini thank you so much thank you for the opportunity karen i i think it's so important to talk about our our journeys and i just i remember feeling so alone those first few months that jeremy died and and then i found way and then i started looking at blogs and stuff and you begin to realize you're not alone and i think that's really important that's why i speak out the way i do but I just, I, I, anybody who's lost their spouse, their loved one, their partner, my heart goes out to you. It's, it's one of the most devastating things that will go through your, that you will go through in your life. But yeah, it's, there's no way through it. The only way through it is grief, is through the grief is through it rather than round it. Um, and just hold yourself in compassion. That's all I will say to you at this moment. Hold yourself in compassion because you're going to need to. You're really going to need to look after yourself. And once you get through that grief, then open your hearts to whatever is, is next. But as Karen and I have said it just as a little bit earlier, it's, it's got to be step by step. And if that step means just getting out of bed to make yourself a cup of tea, that's all you do. So step by step. And if you have somebody to hold your hand, a family member, a sister, a sibling, then that makes it easier. But for some people like me, that was, I didn't want that. I really didn't. So do it, do it your way, right? There's no right or wrong. And if somebody brings all their family together to help them or shuns their family, that's your choice. It's as we said earlier, it's about choices and, and, and just, yeah, hold yourself in compassion. Yeah, that's it is so important. I think we expect so much of ourselves. 
and work very very hard on ourselves and it is kind of just you know giving yourself some grace isn't it and and being kind and we're not we're not very good at doing that are we naturally um it's it's a lot of pressure that we place on ourselves to to be better to do better to get it right and there is no right or wrong that you know I truly believe that we all instinctively know what's right for us what the next best step is and it's learning to tap into that and and do that for ourselves so thanks again Shalini it really has been a wonderful conversation thank you very much thanks Karen thank you Thank you so much for listening today on The Widow Podcast. If you would like to find out more about how I can help you, please visit my website, www.karensutton.co.uk. I would love to help you find your way forward to a brighter future. So get in touch, let's have a conversation and let's help you take back control and find a more positive way through your grief. I look forward to hearing from you.